You may be the first president in history to go down because you can't stop inappropriately talking about an investigation. I can definitively say the president's not a liar. I think it's uh, frankly insulting that that question would be asked. Up to now, we have no profiles in courage among the Republicans. Somebody really speaking out saying Trump is bad for the country. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who deletes his embarrassing tweets when he should delete his whole account. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. And what were those deleted tweets about? They were endorsements of Luther Strange, the interim senator who just lost an Alabama Republican primary to former Judge Roy Moore. This was always a curious endorsement for Trump to make. Strange was the choice of the party establishment, supported to the tune of $10 million by the slouch-shouldered Mitch McConnell. Moore, on the other hand, is a Trumpian white nationalist championed by Steve Bannon. He's a twice-defrocked state judge who, in George Wallace tradition, defies the authority of the federal courts, engages in open bigotry, and conveys an implicit threat of insurrectionary violence. It was curious that he wasn't Trump's guy when he so much liked Trump. Now Trump is on the side he always wanted to be on in the first place, supporting his fellow Obama birther, a guy who rejects evolution, who says homosexuality is a crime against nature, who says Islam is a false religion and the Sharia law is in effect in parts of the United States. Disrespecting federal courts and federal law got Roy Moore removed as a judge. Could the same thing happen to Donald Trump as president? I'll be back in a moment to talk about the fine points of impeachment with Cass Sunstein of Harvard Law School, right after we undelete the tweets. Big election tomorrow in the great state of Alabama. Vote for Senator Luther Strange. Tough on crime and border will never let you down. Luther Strange has been shooting up in the Alabama polls since my endorsement. Finish the job. Vote today for Big Luther. Alabama, get up and vote for Luther Strange. He has proven to me that he will never let you down. Hashtag MAGA. Congratulations to Roy Moore on his Republican primary win in Alabama. Luther Strange started way back and had a good race. Roy win in December. Spoke to Roy Moore of Alabama last night for the first time. Sounds like a really great guy who ran a fantastic race. He will help to hashtag make America great again. Joining me on the line today is Cass Sunstein. He's a professor at Harvard Law School, a former official in both the Clinton and the Obama White Houses, and, according to Wikipedia, the most frequently cited American legal scholar. Is that true, Cass? Well, sometimes they tell me that. I haven't done the count myself, so I don't know. Counting my own citations might not be the most fun. <laughs> I guess we should verify, but I find it very plausible given uh, how productive you are. And you are also most recently the author of a new book called Impeachment, 
A Citizen's Guide, which is why you're here today. Welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you so much. Great to be here. And I should note that your book is reviewed very favorably in the new issue of the New York Review of Books by yours truly and Noah Feldman. We wrote it together. Uh, Noah will be a familiar voice to listeners of this program because he has also been on with me several times to discuss the same topic we're going to talk about today, impeachment. And uh, one thing we point out in, in the review, Cass, is that your book about impeachment does not mention the name Donald Trump. Why didn't you talk about the impeachment case against Donald Trump? Well, there are a couple reasons. One is that uh, one of the impetuses for the book was actually a, a, a book on impeachment that I took a glance at by a historian that was basically saying Trump was impeachable because his hair wasn't right or his golf swing wasn't good enough. It was basically a political screed, and I didn't like that book very much, and I thought to have something that would be you know, more respectful of our traditions and our history and our commander-in-chief just as an institution would be a good idea. And I think it elevates the spirit to think about our uh, founding and our revolution and our history and to get caught up in a political skirmish about whether someone who hasn't been in office very long should be impeached would not be something that I would serve myself or readers by doing. Of course, impeachment does tend to become highly political in practice, as the impeachment of Bill Clinton made clear it was almost perfectly partisan affair in terms of who voted which way on both um, impeachment and against conviction. And I guess the question, and you address this in the book, is how to keep yourself honest because everyone has these partisan instincts. You may even experience them yourself. And uh, how do we make sure that we are applying a neutral test, a fair test, and applying it in the same way to a president we might like a lot as opposed to a president we might violently disagree with and dislike? It's a great question. Here are three tricks, I think, that tend to work. One is, if you think the president is impeachable, suppose you think President Trump is impeachable, uh, it's a good reality check to think, if I loved his policies and voted for him and thought that he was doing a great job, apart from the things that are activating the I word, the impeachment word, would I still think he was impeachable? If it was my favorite political official, would I think he was impeachable? That's a good check on uh, excessive use of the impeachment mechanism. A second trick is to think, I don't think he's impeachable. Would I think he was impeachable if I uh, thought of his policies and his um, general uh, performance with horror, if he was the political party I like least and he was doing terrible things in, apart from the impeachable stuff? Would I still think he wasn't impeachable? That's a second reality check. And the third, which is the hardest, but I think the best, is to think, if I knew nothing about this person, zero, except for the acts that are allegedly a basis for impeachment, then would I, what would I think? That third is a, a kind of veil of ignorance. And I think for President Clinton, for example, or President Nixon, those are really good checks on, on getting all partisan. So when you say veil of ignorance, this is, I think, the reference is to the uh, political theorist John Rawls, who said uh, his, the essence of his theory of justice is, imagine you don't know what your circumstances would be, what kind of life would you choose without knowing that? That is, what should, what should everyone get? Exactly. And so if you thought, for example, that President Clinton was impeachable, if you knew nothing about him aside from the fact that he 
you know, maybe perjured himself and maybe obstructed justice in the context of the Paula Jones lawsuit, then what would you think? And I think on the Clinton case, uh, once you go behind that veil of ignorance, you think, well, he did some pretty terrible things, but does he meet the impeachment standard? Absolutely not, absolutely not, absolutely not. Then if the question was whether Nixon's use of government apparatus to spy on Americans, to use the CIA for his own uh, uh, support uh, in the face of allegations of wrongdoing, then you ask, you know, I knew nothing about whether I like Nixon or not. What do I think of that stuff? That stuff is in the core of the impeachable. So, Kath, when I tried to apply your veil of ignorance in retrospect, uh, I was a little disquieted uh, with where the the argument went in my own mind. Not not in Nixon's case. I think that the case for impeachment there was overwhelming, and it, and it was strong enough that a number of Republicans were ready to vote for impeachment before Nixon resigned. But with Clinton, I found myself thinking, is it really so easy to make the argument that I know I made at the time, and I think you made at the time, that that his offenses were private matters and not an abuse of power. Because how is having, uh, you're using your authority and having a sexual affair with so, someone so much younger not an abuse of power? Okay, good. So if uh, Clinton's supporters behind a veil of ignorance end up thinking maybe he was impeachable, that's uh, uh, honorable. I wouldn't go there. So you could think of Clinton's uh, misdeeds in three different ways. One is uh, he slept with an intern and, you know, maybe she wouldn't have been so interested in him if he hadn't been president of the United States. That's possible, but that wasn't actually a basis for impeachment. And I think it, by according to the Republicans, and I think they were right in, in not saying that a sexual affair with uh, an employee is an impeachable offense, that that, you know, you could describe it as abuse of power in a way that fits with the English language, but not in the way that Hamilton and Madison and the rest of the constitutional founders thought of abuse of power. They were thinking of, you know, invading liberty, being corrupt, using the pardon power in bad ways, not uh, getting someone to like you romantically if that's the right word. The two grounds for impeachment that were actually invoked were promoting perjury and actually perjuring yourself in the sense of uh, misstating the truth with respect to your relationship with uh, someone with whom you had an affair and trying to get her and others to cover up the truth with respect to the affair. It was perjury and obstruction of justice, basically. And both of those are, are bad. They're probably worse than bad. But they're not abuses of power in the sense that the impeachment clause makes a high crime or misdemeanor. So anyone could try to lie about a sexual affair in court, not good, but not use of presidential power, or anyone could try to convince the person with whom you had an affair to lie about it has happened, by the way. And to do that in court is not good. It it's could be a crime, but it's not abuse of presidential authority. So if you get ba go back to the debates in the convention and in the discussions when we the people ratified the Constitution, the sort of thing that Clinton was accused of is just, what's the right word? Universes away, galaxies away, nations away from what they were actually focusing on. It's, it's a very different kind of misdeed. But but they weren't just affairs. I mean, there were two. There was the Monica Lewinsky affair, but that the the whole thing was triggered by the Paula Jones affair, and she also was a government uh, employee. And unlike Monica Lewinsky, 
was suing Clinton because she claimed there was a coercive element to it. Now, that, of course, had happened before he became president. Uh, exactly. And the, the last point, I think, is crucial. So, in general, uh, offenses that you committed before you became president aren't high crimes and misdemeanors. What was contemplated was, as you said, abuse of distinctly presidential authority. And if someone, you know, uh, committed sexual harassment or uh, shoplifted or jaywalked or uh, did some kind of economic bad thing, let's call it fraud, before they became president, uh, not good, but not impeachable. So I think the focus should be on seeing impeachment through the lens of the American Revolution and the Constitution adopted relatively soon after that. And that's, you can even see the Declaration of Independence as akin to articles of impeachment. And I think that's instructive because that's the sort of thing they were focused on. If, let's say, sainted George Washington had done some horrible things, I don't believe he did, but before being president, uh, you know. Chopped you down can, the cherry tree. Maybe it was on <laughs> government property. Yeah. Completely. So yeah. that cherry tree went down. Fortunately, he owned up to the fact. Uh, but suppose he lied about it. Uh, it was before he was being, being president. So the, the general rule, there is an exception, which I'll get to if you, if you like. But the general rule is anything you did before being president was not an abuse of presidential authority by definition. So it's not impeachable for that reason. The, so the Paula Jones thing, you know, really bad if it's true, but that's not the impeachable, uh, we're not in the impeachable category. Then uh, having Monica Lewinsky lie about a relationship with the president in the context of the Jones lawsuit on assumptions that could be correct, that was obstruction of justice. But that's not the kind of uh, high crime or misdemeanor in the way that goes back to English meaning and that had been Americanized in the 18th century that would be a basis for impeachment. That is, it didn't involve um, corruption. It didn't involve infringement on uh, civil liberties in the sense that was understood by those who fought the revolution. It didn't involve abuse of authority like what Madison was concerned about, about getting a treaty by lying or um, pardoning people who had done terrible things in, in which, in the extreme case, the president himself was implicated. It's, it, this is a different universe from their own concerns. There are some legal scholars who take a different perspective on this uh, in response to the piece Noah Feldman and I wrote reviewing your book. Uh, Bob Bauer, who's another former White House counsel, made an argument on the Lawfare blog that prior crimes are impeachable. Is there is there a case there to be made? Well, it's hazardous to disagree with Bob Bauer, who's a tremendous lawyer, but uh, I spent a lot of the last few months in the 18th century, and I really don't see it. Um, the only one that I'd say is an exception, and this was discussed at the Constitutional Convention, if the president procures the presidency through corrupt or uh, unlawful means, then we're in the domain of the impeachable. So if the president, you know, personally 
fixes the ballot boxes so that they say he won when he didn't, then we're talking. But if well, the president... funny you should mention that. It seems <laughs> that exactly that question might be might be relevant because obviously we are talking about at least the possibility of collusion to skew the result of the election, uh, not necessarily stealing votes in the way you would have thought about stealing them in the 18th century, but with the same kind of effect. So what... What does the Constitution? The Constitution doesn't mention that in any way. So how do we draw? How do you draw the inference that that might be an exception to the rule that prior crimes are not impeachable? It's it's a purely historical argument. That is, at the Constitutional Convention, the kind of decisive discussion of whether uh, impeachment should exist at all referred exactly to this example of the president procuring the office through unlawful or corrupt means. So bracketing any particular president, you know, we'll go back in history. If uh, President Kennedy was sometimes charged, had stolen Illinois, great admirer of President Kennedy, and I don't want to make any factual allegations against him, but if President Kennedy had stolen Illinois through uh, fooling around with the voting or conspired with uh, Illinois officials to do that, then it's not, you know, it's not just my opinion. It's, it's, it's right there in the, in the debates. It's, it's, there's, the debates are short, so if something's there, it's pretty revealing, and this is right there. Historical I footnote, this, I, yeah, I know you know, Cass, of course, that just stealing Illinois would not have swung the election. He would have had to steal Texas as well, but continue. Uh, fair point, fair point. So take it as a as a hypothetical about stealing an election by conspiring with local people and take that as the, the only category of the pre-official act that could qualify as a high crime and misdemeanor. And the reason I say that is that does qualify because they said it did and nothing else qualifies because everything they said that did qualify was abuse of presidential power. And by definition, things you did before you were president can't be abuse of presidential power. And if this seems a little random or arbitrary, it actually makes a lot of sense that what they were thinking is our core concern is the person is using the office in a way that is abusive of authority, which could be a crime but need not be a crime, or person becomes that – that gets that awesome authority through – corruption or abuse. And that second thing is uh, belongs, you know, in the old essay text says what does not belong in the in the category. That thing, obtaining the office by corruption or abuse, that belongs in the category with abusing the office, even though formally it occurred before you had the office. You're only there because of illegitimate means. And the fact that, you know, someone did something pretty terrible, let's say, you know, uh, swindled somebody five years before becoming president. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, lawyer Bauer thinks that that's impeachable, but I can't find anything in the history that supports that view. But I think you're right that if that it would be a kind of absurd catch-22 if you were exempt from st- stealing an election was, wasn't impeachable. Then all you would have to do is get across the finish line and you would be safe. Right. And you're, you're talking logic and logic usually beats everything. I'm, I'm trying to be more um, uh, kind of brain dead and just talking about what appears in the text of old documents 
and the, the logical argument is very powerful. The, the What I'm calling the brain-dead argument, that is just channeling what was said in the latter part of the 18th century. That and logic fortunately line up. We keep being thrown back to this question, of course, of this phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors, and what it meant then and how we understand it now and how these terms have evolved. One question for you, do you think high crimes and misdemeanors are synonyms? Do they mean the same thing or do they mean two different things? That's a great question. And the American experience doesn't really sort that out very clearly. I would understand them to mean different things. I think that fits more with the tenor of the American practice before the revolution as well as the ratification debates. High crimes could mean awful violations of the criminal law, and misdemeanors could mean and, implicitly, I think, high, bad acts. So it could be understood as different. Crimes are actual violations of the criminal law, and misdemeanors are really bad things. I think that's probably the best understanding. A a different understanding, which I can't find anyone ruling out, would say that high crimes and misdemeanors It's just one phrase where a high crime in this text doesn't necessarily mean a violation of the criminal law. It just means an extreme badness. And then high crimes and misdemeanors would be just a shorthand phrase for really bad stuff. And the English practice actually is compatible with that. As far as uh, I've investigated, there wasn't clear parsing. This is a misdemeanor, but not a crime. Or this is a crime, and so we don't have to think about whether it's a misdemeanor. It was all kind of taken as a package. But given the fact that the English language has different words for crimes and misdemeanors, I do think the more logical view is the crimes thing is about violations of the criminal law that are really bad. Some violations of the criminal law, you know, jaywalking, aren't high crimes in the constitutional sense. And misdemeanors picks up Uh, bad acts. I think that's fair to the convention debates where there was discussion of uh, serious wrongdoing that that didn't count as a crime, but that would count as a a ground for impeachment. And that suggests to use the word misdemeanors in as a separate idea is 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 probably more logical, but th- it w- it wouldn't change things which one you went for. Whether you understood crimes and misdemeanors as kind of one thing or two separate things. Well, the key point is that they're all abuses of official power, and whether the ab- abuse of official power is also a criminal offense or not is actually not the the or the most relevant question. Yeah, completely. So, uh, this is something where. It's a very understandable mistake, but it's a widespread mistake where I think um, Congresswoman Pelosi said that the question whether a president, I think she was speaking of the current one, is impeachable depends on whether he committed a crime. But, and that you might think that's true given the high crimes and misdemeanors kind of sounds crime-ish or sounds crime, exclamation point. But but that's not really right, that if a president, for example, announced, I'm going to pardon everyone who's uh, shot an African-American, that would be very clearly impeachable, but it wouldn't be a violation of the criminal law in all likelihood, given the nature of the pardon power. Or if the president said, I'm going to uh, go on vacation in Paris for the next six months and basically just enjoy myself, unless there's some immigration issue, that wouldn't be uh, a crime in any way. But that's 
very clearly impeachable. If the president started violating civil liberties and civil rights in ways that were really egregious, that you could design the case so that that's not close to a criminal act on his part. He's not violating any criminal statute. Uh, but that's, in my view, at the core of why the impeachment clause was believed to be so crucial uh, in the late 18th century with Massachusetts, I'm pleased to say, being especially articulate about the relationship between impeachment and preservation of freedom. Massachusetts being your home state, of course. It is currently my home state. And, you know, uh, those shots, the shot heard around the world, which was uh, closely connected, in my view, with the impeachment clause. That was in Concord, Massachusetts, the first time the Americans defended themselves. So you play out in your book a number of hypotheticals without names attached to them. I think you had some fun doing that. I just wanted to run a few quickly by you. Cass, can a president be impeached for physically assaulting someone? No. So what, so what do you do? Nice. What do you do if the president hits, hits someone with a fireplace poker and causes serious injury? Can they be criminally prosecuted? No, not while they're president. Uh, civil suits, the Supreme Court said, are okay. If we had a very violent president who thinks he's actually heavyweight champion of the world, he's got, uh, he's got some license to start hitting. I think there will be political and other safeguards if that happens, but it's not an impeachable offense. Can a president be impeached for not paying his taxes? Absolutely not. That that's not an abuse of presidential power. It's not good, but it's not an impeachable offense. Can a president be impeached for playing too much golf? Well, if he's playing golf all the time and not being president, really, uh, yes. Yeah, he's sick, but, he's, sick of the, he's sick of these guys in Congress. He's just going to play golf for the night. Like you said, going to Paris, except it'll be in, I don't know, Bedminster? Uh, impeachable. So the, the constitutional framework, actually the ratification debates made clear uh, that abuse of presidential authority is the basic thing, but if you fully neglect your duty to be president, that would also be in the impeachable. So I think uh, too much golf is uh, in the eye of beholder across <laughs> a wide range. I think any golf thought, is too much golf, but it's question is when it's impeachable. Yeah. Uh, uh, President Obama was accused of playing too much golf. President Trump has been accused of too much golf. I think neither of them uh, it's close to the impeachable for their golf enthusiasm. But if we had someone who basically said, I'm going to be a golfer now, and you know, now that Tiger Woods isn't doing so good, it's my turn, then now we're talking. And that is, it's a little bit of a crazy example. But I think we can think of somewhat less crazy examples where there's really a, a failure to do the job. I hope and expect we would never observe that. But that is a, a category that fits with what Hamilton and Madison were thinking about. Can a president be impeached for declining to enforce a law that he disagrees with? No. Um, lots of presidents decline to enforce laws that they disagree with. That's part of prosecutorial discretion. But doesn't the president take an oath of office to uphold the Constitution and the laws? Yeah, so it's a, a little bit, um, there are a few different steps. Uh, violation of the oath of office is not impeachable. So this was really messed up during the Clinton impeachment where people said Clinton violated his oath, therefore he's impeachable. The impeachable offenses are high crimes and misdemeanors. So violate your oath of office, that's really bad, but it's not an impeachable offense. If you decline to enforce, let's say, 
a drug law that you don't like very much or some other law that you think is not a high priority, that's not, that's not even inconsistent with the oath because the oath doesn't deprive you of the authority to say these laws are my priorities and other laws aren't. Any prosecutor has that authority and certainly the commander-in-chief does. You could make it and, – and so – any president, really, back to Washington, there have been some criminal laws that they haven't enforced, even a, you know, a small one. That not because necessarily they don't like it, usually that, but because they got limited budget and they got other things to focus on. If you just decided you're not going to enforce the law at all, or pretty close to that, then the misdemeanor language starts to become interesting. Then you are showing an egregious neglect of duty, and then then we're talking about a, a pretty serious discussion. And here's the last one for you. Can a president be impeached for profiting from a conflict of interest? I don't, I don't know why so. these particular ones are springing <laughs> to mind, but... I, I don't think so. We'd have to spell it out a little bit. So let's suppose a president, you know, let's suppose President Clinton or President Johnson had an investment in something and they made certain policy choices that were helpful to their investments. One question is whether that's a high crime or high misdemeanor, and I think high is implicit before misdemeanor. As I spelled out the hypothetical, no. Uh, another question is whether we're even in the category of misdemeanor. And you'd have to find a really extreme case. If you had a case where a president, let's say Johnson or Nixon or Eisenhower, turned the law into something that no neutral president could favor, there was no legitimate ground for understanding the law this way. And the consequence of understanding the law that way, maybe it's the securities law or something, was that he ended up making zillions of dollars. I think there, that's corruption. So that, then we're getting there. Or say insider trading, if the president made money based on his advanced knowledge of a decision he was going to announce. You'd say that would be impeachable. Yeah. Well, I don't think so. I think I think it would have to be a very on steroids version of that. So oh, just as a crime isn't um, necessary to have an impeachable offense, so it's not sufficient. So if a president, you know, starts stealing Netflix services without paying for them and is just really having fun watching Luke Cage which is good, or Jessica Jones, which is phenomenal, <laughs> and, but, not, but not paying for them, then uh, that's not an impeachable offense. And so what I'm thinking is insider trading, you know, no one should minimize the non-goodness of insider trading, but it doesn't have the magnitude, un unless we're talking about something that means the presidency is going haywire rather than the president is making money. So that's a good kind of shorthand. Is the presidency going haywire? And for insider trading, I don't think we're talking about that. For Nixon's misuse of the apparatus of government to distort political process and punish political enemies, there, there we're really getting there. Um, insider trading, I think if there's a systematic distortion of the insider trading law that has the effect of making the president rich, that, that's closer. I've been speaking to Cass Sunstein of Harvard Law School. His new book is Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide. Cass, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Really enjoyed it.
That's it for today's show. Are you following us on Twitter? We're at RealTrumpCast. TrumpCast was produced by Jason DeLeon. John Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to TrumpCast. <laughs>